0: All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this.
1: The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com.
2: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.
0: Hello, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. The podcast where we get nosy and speak to some of our favourite artists, musicians or bands about what they've got up to between tours in order to survive whatever that might mean in their case. I'm so excited to welcome Raymond McGinley, guitarist of legendary Glasgow band Teenage Fan Club to the show, sorry, Bell's Hill. Of course, you're probably listening to this thinking he probably hasn't had to work many jobs between tours apart from one near miss of almost digging a tunnel to France. So I'll leave you to it. We chat a lot about their new record, Endless Arcade. You know, I'm not shy about using this show to speak to bands that i love and ask them about things that things that i find fascinating teenage fan club's new record endless arcade is coming out on the 30th of april this is i'm more inclined behind this it's sounding amazing i'm really looking forward to the record and looking forward to to seeing them play eventually east london's signature brew are the official beer of the podcast they've made beers with mastodon idols slaves sports team and a whole bunch of other bands if you live in the uk you can get beers from their website delivered directly to your door. Signaturebrew.co.uk for that. And with the voucher code 101 podcast, all capital letters, you can get 10% off your order. Here's Raymond McGinley of Teenage Fan Club. Go well. Cheers! I mean, that, that's the yeah.
3: know. I was lucky as a band. We were lucky to buy guitars in the '80s, and I bought two guitars in the middle of the '80s. When I was one, when I was a, when I was a student, when I when I had more sense later on. When I thought, okay, uh, I shouldn't have bought that Yamaha. I want to buy a real guitar. Buy a real mm-hmm. guitar. i was thinking like a vintage '60s guitar. So I bought a Fender Jaguar 1963. Again, it's kind of boring, nerdy stuff or whatever. But out of an advert and sounds a melody maker, a place called Guitar Player in Roch- Rochdale, and it was two hundred and ninety pounds or something. I bought it mail order, and this thing turned up, and I bought this guitar. I sold the crap Yamaha one I'd had, uh, and I bought a proper guitar. And I bought that because I had a student grant, and I could buy a guitar. and It was two hundred odd quid, and I still yeah. use that guitar, and then really, yeah, yeah, all the time. Uh, and then the other guitar that we use all the time as a band, and I still use, after I left university, I was on the, the dole because uh, I'd made a conscious decision. Uh, and this is how long ago it was I, I left university. They were building the Channel Tunnel at the time. <laughs> and I got offered a job. I would studied engineering at University of Glasgow. I got a degree and I got an, a job offer working on the Channel Tunnel. Wow, and I thought, uh, you know what? I kind of want to be in a band. If I get a job, I'm never gonna do this band thing. So I'm just gonna go on the dole, you know, because otherwise, I'll never, I'll never do it. What year was that? That was that was 1985.
0: And was that during uh, The the Boy Hairdressers?
3: Well, this is pre-The Boy Hairdressers. So 1985, I had this idea that I wanted to be in a band, but I wasn't. I was in a, a band with a couple of other mates, but, you know, at um, the time, a guy called uh, Ross Sinclair, who's you now a professor of art at Glasgow uh, School of Art, my other friend, Neil Mingus. Uh, but I kind of wanted to do some, something else and that, we weren't really doing much for that band I wanted to do something else So 85, 86, there was a lot of stuff happening in Glasgow There was a club called Splash One run by various people including some people from Primal Scream like Bobby Gillespie and, uh, you know, I met a lot of people around about that time including people like Norman Blake that's I'm now in a band with and lots of other people um, and you know, they brought lots of bands to Glasgow that saw Sonic Youth for the first time and Primal Scream played there and, Brilliant. you know, Wire played there and the Mary Chain and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of wanting to be in a band and, and join a band and do that kind of stuff. So I, I bought... I knew, the, I knew the guys in Primal Scream at that time. The band then was kind of different than the band is now. This was been around a while. And I had this Fender... I'd bought like a Fender Twin amp, but I'd seen this other guitar for sale, a 60s Epiphone Casino. Yeah. And the guys in Primal Scream had borrowed my amp to go on tour, and they said, oh, we'll buy that amp off you. We'll give you 300 quid for it. So I thought, oh, that's great. So I'd kind of had the 300 pounds in my already – I kind of owned the 300 pounds. I was on the dole at the time. I was in a flat, and I shared a flat with two other people. And the rent for the flat, the monthly rent for the flat was £300. And I had their rent that I was going to use to pay the other two people in the flat that I was going to pay the rent with. And I also had my £100 share, which I got as housing benefit at the time because it was on the dole. So I got my, they just sent me the money and I cashed it. So I had this £300 and I saw a guitar in the paper, headphone casino in the 1960s. And I thought, well, Primal Screamer buying an amp. I'll go and have a look at this epiphone and i went to look at this guitar near where the flat was the guy opened the case and i thought oh it was like that moment when the, the some scene in uh pulp fiction would kind of open a briefcase and there's a kind of glow or something you know and you're kind of not quite sure what it was a bit like that you know and i thought yeah, yeah that looks great and i'm trying to not look impressed so anyway I buy this guitar with a 300 pound because I'm going to get the £300 off of Primal Scream for buying my amp. But then I, I took the guitar back, and then my mate Stuart, uh, Stuart May, who was in Primal Scream at the time, said, Oh, we're not going to buy that amp anymore. We've got something else. <laughs> you know. You oh, no. So yeah. I was kind of in a hole, but I can't remember what I did. But I've got a memory. I kind of had a bit of a diet at that point, which is probably eating like pasta with like brown sauce or something, you know. Yeah, and just yeah. surviving what was in the cupboard for for a month or something. But I'm glad that happened because those two guitars, the African Casino and the Fender uh, Jaguar, they became me and Norman's guitars and the boy hairdressers. Norman used right. the Casino and I used Fender Jaguar. We still use those two guitars now and we use those guitars extensively on the new, the new record we've got coming out, Endless Arcade. We're still using them.
0: That's brilliant. I mean, they're so synonymous
3: to your, to your sound, those guitars. Well, that's, I mean, you know, I still, I mean, people kind of say, people say to me, is that the same guitar you had in the boy hairdressers? I was like, yeah, but well, those are the two same guitars we had in the boy hairdressers, you know?
0: <laughs> brilliant. And
3: brilliant. one was bought when I was a student, and the other one was bought when I was in the dole, you know, when I kind of had no money uh, and kind of got these things. And we bought all these other things afterwards, uh, you know, pre-internet days when bargains still existed. and uh, <laughs> But we still use these things that we had back then. And it feels great to be somehow connected. And I can see a picture because I saw somebody showed my picture recently of the boy hairdressers, a band, me and Norman and Francis, our drummer, were in before Teenage Fan Club. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, yeah, look, it's the same guitars. using." <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> great. You know, uh, and I just, glad... I just love I just love that kind of continuity of using the same instruments and use them all the way through. And all sorts of different sounding records as well.
0: Totally, totally. And I'm glad you brought up Endless Arcades. Of course, that's why I'm able to chat to you today. You know, it's coming out on the 30th of April. Yeah. And the, the, the two singles that have, have come out, you know, the videos that have come out with them, especially I'm More Inclined, which is, you know, footage from recording that in Hamburg. You know, it struck me how how fun it looked for you? You know, it's, yeah. sort of had this, it's got this real effortless charm. Um, you know, did it feel like that?
3: Yeah, but I mean, also, it felt great being in the, in the studio. I mean, it's kind of all, being in the studio always feels like a treat. Uh, and even though it's been a long time, having been in the studio, it still feels exciting to be making new stuff for the first time. But I suppose also looking at the video of us, you know, and the video from Warren Klein has got us, Recording the song in the studio at the time, it it looks extra interesting now because it's like yeah, rem- remember that you know, people hanging over That's... each other, you know, listening yeah. to because that was just before the lockdown thing happened, <laughs> um, and it just looks it has a bit of extra resonance about it, you know. Um, but it's that there is uh, it's good as well to have done a video thing because. That's just a a record of us doing, making, making, doing that in the, you know, actually doing it for real, you know, because it seems like better than any conceptual video or whatever, you know. You end up doing these things and you're doing it and you think, well, what are we doing here? This seems a bit silly, you know. TH Fan Club has always
0: struck me as the kind of band that would, you know, much rather make records than music videos.
3: Uh, well yeah by times a million or whatever definitely (laughs) um but yeah so if we can just do make the music because we're kind of thinking we did that uh we're thinking do we ever need to make a music video again maybe we just get because we know a friend of ours and you know photographer donald milne who filmed that and we've done stuff with him for years and he's great and we think well, let's just get Donald in the studio. Anything else would do it and we'll just get him to film it. Then we won't have to think of it making a, mm. Mm. making a music video again. We'll just do it, you know. I think people like to see people actually doing things for real than, you know, some kind of conceptual or a band pretending to be a band, which is a lot of music videos are people acting and playing the themselves in, in a role and somehow it just looks a bit stiff.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. At what point do you decide, do you decide that you're going to, you know, start booking in studio time, you know, after how many songs have you and Norman written, you know, together or separately where you sort of call each other and think, you know, let's, let's get some studio time booked in.
3: Well, I think sometimes it works kind of both, you know, that way around and sometimes it works the other way around as well. And that, and this has kind of always been the case, I think, with the band. There's something about booking the studio that's really inspiring as well. You know, you kind of you got some ideas, but it's more you make the decision to think, let's make a record. And then you book the time. And as soon as you've booked it, you see this thing on the horizon, which is you're going to go there and make the record. And having that, the reality of having songs to make a record instead of just, I don't think any of us are the kind of people that just walk around and see ourselves as songwriters or whatever as a kind of lifestyle or something. You know, we like to. Write songs because we want to make records and we want it to be something that we play on stage and it becomes a real thing and it's not just something we do every day. I think we like to have a reason to write songs or finish a song. You've always got ideas floating about and little snippets of things that you're trying to. So like for me, you can. Kind of I'll sit and play the guitar and I'm thinking, what are the what are the things I've got floating around in my head? And I'm kind of really guilty of not recording any demos. I just kind of have to try and wrangle them out of my brain but for us i think the the point of really knowing we're going to make a record when we book the studio you know because you know it's like then we as a band we all agree is everyone available can we do this thing we're going to do this and like whether it's like next week or in four months or whatever you know once it becomes a reality then it feels really exciting because you know that you're sitting working on a song not just as a a self-indulgent exercise apropos of nothing. You know, you're doing it because you're kind of you've got a destination for it, and it's actually something you're going to work with with other people, and it's going to become a reality. And the pressure is good as well to have to to know that you need to finish an idea and turn an idea into a song because either you might play in front of other people or that you might work on together. You know, because you can have a million ideas, unfinished ideas, but you know turning it into something that's gonna come out to something that you might you might feel like you're gonna suggest that other people in the world might pay any attention to. You know, it's a mm-hmm. different kind of thing. And I think we need the reality of knowing that we're gonna actually go into the studio and do it to to take us over, to actually finish the songs. Do you get
0: inspiration from you know, when you, when you booked the studio time in Hamburg, of course there's, you know, so much Beatles stuff around that. And not only the Beatles, but John Lennon's last record, you know, it was the same mixing desks used used on that. You know, when you, when you, when you booked that, did that add a kind of inspiration in the way that you could kind of envision the record sounding or feeling?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think Hamburg, the first time as a band teenage fan club ever went to Hamburg was in 19... 1990, and we just put we were putting out a single which is a cover, a pretty, you know, you know, raucous, you know, (laughs) mildly version of the Ballad of John and Yoko that we were releasing that was going to be released on, and for some reason, I think it was going to be what would have been John Lennon's 50th birthday. And we were in Hamburg at that time, just coincidentally, playing our first show in Hamburg on the Reaper Band. Um, brilliant so I don't think anyone can really think well I'm sure you know anyone that's into music thinks it hard to think of Hamburg or to be in Hamburg without thinking about the Beatles you know mm. and also just lots of people you know you, you think you know what it would have been like like Little Richard or something playing in Hamburg or something you know with Jimmy Hendrix playing guitar or whatever you don't know that th- what that would have been like at that time and there's still remnants of that atmosphere left you know so i think the the city does have that that uh that kind of resonance or whatever that's still there you know but also we like this kind of we like hamburg in other kind of ways as well you know it seems you know it's kind of just an industrial or ex-industrial city northern european there's certain parallels with glasgow and you know but Mm. for whatever reason we like it there you know, and it feels like a place that makes sense for us to make a record there.
0: That's funny you say about Northern Britain, actually. I didn't connect that because the docks in Hamburg, they're they are pretty brutal looking, aren't they?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose maybe one of the differences between the docks in Hamburg and the docks in Glasgow is that the docks in Hamburg exist a lot more than the docks
0: yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, here in Glasgow do. Um, you know, it still feels, you know, I mean, you know, not that I know, but, Industry in Hamburg. I don't know anything. You know, I have no idea. So, you know, someone in Hamburg is listening to this and thinking, "What are you talking about? Shut up!" You know, I, I'm with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, but just as a kind of, you know, a city that has that, there, 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 there are some kind of similarities of, you know, between Glasgow and Hamburg. You know, not completely, but um, but we, it's a city we've always liked. We felt comfortable there. Yeah. We Felt like it makes sense for us to be creative there we like it
0: in the press release you know sort of the the main quote is is from you um, about the title of endless arcade saying you know you you think of an endless arcade as an imaginary one that goes on forever and you know you always you know i took that personally as you know the real life you know you're always going to be surprised you're going to go through some twists and turns is that maybe subconsciously a reflection of being in a band for so long
3: yeah i mean i suppose everyone Uh, I suppose all we know as people have been in a band is we see life as being in a band. You know, it's it's a kind of stupid thing to say, but, you know, I think everyone, whatever they do, has, you know, their own, uh, you know, everyone's lives have. I mean, I suppose we live, we have chosen to live a life that's, I wouldn't call it precarious, but, the thing I like about doing what we do is there's no guarantee that it's going to last any longer than what you're doing now. And mm. I think personally, I've always liked the idea of a lack of, you know, it's like 30 years in or whatever, you know, yeah. you yeah. can look back on it, but you can't look forward on it as a career or whatever, you know? Uh, right. Yeah. You know, and I've always thought, well, we'll do this record and then see what happens after that. I've You know, I think as a, as a band, we'd never have a presumption that just because we made the record that people are necessarily going to like it, you know. We have to satisfy ourselves first. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in the world that people can look at or listen to or do or, you know, whatever, instead of listening or giving any time to our music, you know, Uh, there's a million distractions out there. I've got no preconception of whether people interact with what we do or not. So it could be as this life, this charmed life that we've led, doing this thing the this self-indulgent thing all these years it could come to an end at any time you know and i've thought that for 30 years or more than 30 years that i've been doing this thing we all think that
0: have you been quite good at staving off any you know anxiety or neurosis that might offer
3: yeah i mean i, I personally i kind i i like as an individual I, I like not knowing what's around the corner as not it's uncertainty feels comfortable to me um and I don't really know why that is, um, but you're kind of going back to the the album title of "Endless Arcade" and think of that as a kind of you know a thing of you know a kind of a way of describing life or whatever. I think it was like, I I was doing the vocal for the song of that and I kind of written out the lyrics and we're talking about that I don't even have a title for the song necessarily at that point and I think well I think the song's going to be called Endless, "Endless Arcade" and it was Norman that said. Endless Arcade, be a good title for the album, you know? Uh, And Norman suggested that as a title for the album. You know, there's a song called Endless Arcade on the album, and, you know, but the two things don't necessarily need to, you know, it's not like, just the title seems to reflect this collection of songs that we had, and that was Norman's idea, Mm. even though I wrote that song, but it's not like, somehow you have something that seems to make some sense to you or to us, you know? Uh, that's not a literal thing and that moment of thinking that would be a good thing for the album that kind of happened in like five seconds or whatever from Norman maybe didn't b- listen to the song and I had the lyrics and he was like what are you going to call it Endless Arcade well yeah yeah I think will call it the song Endless Arcade yeah no, that'd be a good thing for the album and that's it you know that moment is done you know? something
0: quite magical about you know I suppose that's like writing a riff you know you might ha- it might write something in five minutes and then that's going to be with you for the rest of your life.
3: Absolutely, and any any kind of moment of creativity, or sometimes, sometimes you have to remind yourself that. I think, and, and I'm t- talking to my. I'm not. This isn't advice to other people. <laughs> I'm talking to myself here. Uh, you have to remind yourself that things can be simple. Mm. That you you might get caught up in thinking, oh, it's all so complicated, and oh, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and you know, you can get. You know, sometimes you do need to remind yourself to to see the try and see the simplicity and what's in front of you. Whatever it is you need to do, you know, uh, you know whether it's making a record or making your dinner. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you, can, you know, it's it's all an enjoyable process that it can be. You know, uh, I mean, I, as I say, I've I've lived a pretty charmed life. You know, other people have lived much. You know, because the thing. I've always thought sometimes you know people in bands have a bit of a reputation for being wingers, you know, uh, and you know, <laughs> and people are like oh God we need to go and do this and you know I need to get up at six in the morning because we got a flight to you know we got a flight to wherever you know you know we need to you know we need flight to Spain at six in the morning oh my God that's terrible <laughs> you know you're up at six in the morning you're in a taxi and you see like those guys standing on the slip road at the motorway waiting for a van to come and pick them up (laughs) to take them to some site working god knows where doing god knows what you think those guys are there every morning they don't know what they're doing day to day you know (laughs) it's like you know we've got nothing to complain about
0: it's funny that you know your lives are so you never really know what's what's around the corner or you know what's ahead of you because from from a fan's point of view teenage fan club lots and lots and lots of people Teenage Fan Club has remained a constant in their lives. We, we can rely on the fact that you're going to release another record. It's a wonderful feeling.
3: I mean, it's it's reassuring to, you know, and it's always reassuring to meet people and interact with people that, you know, tell you. And the frustrating thing for us a bit on, on this new record is there's a kind of cycle of process and making a record. And part of, to me, the end of that cycle is, you go and play some shows and you meet people after a show and they say, oh, yeah, I got the new record. I really like it. I like this song or that song. Or, And you meet the people for whom this thing that we've done means something to them, you know. Uh, and at that point, you feel like the thing that you've been doing kind of obsessively just as a kind of battle between you and your own expectations of what you might do is kind of finished because it's gone, you've kind of seen seen it go into the world and people have taken it into their life and do with, use music as the way people use music to you know, the way we all use music or whatever to help us with our lives or whatever, you know and, and the frustrating thing now is I don't know when we're going to get that moment when we go back out on tour again and you know, be so it's a bit frustrating at the moment because usually we'd be thinking, oh we're going to pl- go and play those shows in a month or two you know and we don't know what's going to happen. And it's a strange, it feels kind of strange to us because we've always seen that point of when we finish the record and then the record comes out and then we go out and we tour. That's all part of the, that's all part of the creative process. And we get to the, you know, and we move into that other thing where we're out in front of people and it happens every day and you move on from city to city and all the rest of it as part of the thing that we've always enjoyed. And uh, I suppose at the moment, we're missing that <laughs> final piece, you know, but hopefully we'll get there before too long.
0: And it's coming out on Merge in the States, at least.
3: It's on Merge and sits in on their own label, Pima and uh, UK and Europe and everywhere else, uh, you know. Um...
0: And Merge, I kind of, I'm a big, big Superchunk fan. And so Merge Records, as far as I understand it, was, was born out of Superchunk needing a record label to put out, you know, putting out their own seven inches. And there are a lot of similarities for me between, you and Superchunk especially what you were just saying then a little bit earlier about how you know you don't necessarily walk around thinking that you're songwriters but it's certainly something that you're brilliant at and give off a kind of inviting vibe about you know I think Superchunk has that as well
3: well we we first met Superchunk in 1990 we were in New York uh, and we were label mates on Matador so we first met them hung out with them then uh, so we've known we've, we've known uh, Superchunk and you know Mac and Laura at merge and everything. Mm-hmm. That's more than that's 31 years ago. Wow. Um, so we've known each other a long time, and we totally respect the fact that they are, you know, they're people that did what they do out of a necessity to, you know, it starts off you do the label not as a grand ego project, but as just something that is. You need in your life to get from A to B or, or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and they're they're great people. We we love working with them. We're working with, you know, we've known them. As I say we've known Mac and Laura for uh, you know for thirty-one years or whatever. Uh, and we've been working with them as our label Northmaker for now fifteen, sixteen years or so. Wow. And, and it's great. We've gone really well. And all the other people that work there, they're a great bunch of people.
0: Think back to 1990 and the band formed in in 89 um you said you know you're in a couple of bands before that i mean at at what point i mean has there ever been a point where you've looked at like what you do and you 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 realized oh this is my this is my job now you know i'm never going to have to look for another job
3: well the idea of being in a band you know it, it doesn't quite i mean it is definitely you know this is what this is what i do I've never had a job doing anything else other than being a paper boy. Uh, you know, I, I was a paper boy, then I was a student, then I was on the dole, and then I was uh, finally got to make some money uh, surviving being in a band. So I don't know anything else. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, so this is what I do, but I don't have any expectation that it's going to continue, but it has continued for a long time. Uh, but, you know, God knows what I'd do if I wasn't doing this. I've no idea. I don't know anything else. <laughs> How were you feeling
0: about you know this sort of subject? You know, during the Creation Records years, did it feel like it could end at any time? I mean, what was the feeling?
3: I've, I mean, on the all the way through being in a band, I've always thought, oh, this could be the last record we make. This could be the last. You know, if I've been in Tokyo or I've been in Sydney, Australia, or wherever, I'll always think this could be the last time I'm here because it might not happen next time. You know. Mm. So every 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 way along the way, it's not like I'm thinking, oh, God, this is all so tiresome. Here we are again, you know, whatever. You know, I think, well, this could be the last time I do this, you know, and yeah. I've been thinking that for 30 years. This could be the last time, you know. I can't imagine never stopping making recording music because it's easier to do now, you know, or playing music or playing the guitar. But doing it and anyone else in the world being interested in it is something I've never, any you know, presumed that that would happen. Uh, and, but it's definitely, undeniably, this is, you know, this is, this is what we do for a living. Um, but I think, you know, I think, you know, we're only want to continue doing it. And I think it's for all of us, if, if it's, you know, you don't want to do anything, to, you know, to do with a band, you know, it's, it's like doing this and leading a dignified existence as well. Yeah. You know, and trying to do both those things to feel like you feel proud of it creatively you know um, artistically or whatever and to be able to try and survive doing it and keep those two things going um, but for me one is the other because as soon as you start to think of oh maybe I'll just do that you know there has to be a reason for doing anything other than just money if there isn't a reason other than that then you shouldn't do it I suppose is or if anything feels instinctively in any little way that it feels a bit wrong or whatever, you know, Uh, you know, it feels, the only mistake I think you ever make doing this kind of thing is to do something against your own instincts. Uh, So I think maybe what keeps us going is we try to, you know, always have a reason for doing something Mm. beyond it just being what we do for a living. Do
0: you think the songs, the, you know, the, the, the style of songs and you know the lyrics you know help you know push you up in keeping a kind of i suppose positive mentality on that i mean for me everything flows that song's helped me get through some really hard times in my life of of uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen because you know after listening to that song i was looking up you know flow theory and getting into that stuff and kind of understanding um energy in the world
3: yeah i think i mean everything flows Is a great song and we've been playing that for a long time and I can remember back to when Norman phoned me, and this would have been 1988, 89, and said, oh, I've written this song, Uh, I think it sounds pretty good or whatever, I can't remember what he said. Actually, Norman probably wouldn't have said, I think it sounds pretty good, he probably said, oh yeah, I think it's okay, listen to this, and I went round and listened, (laughs) listened to it and kind of thinking... Yeah, this is this is good, you know. But again, as you're saying, it's having some. It's like some kind of positivity that isn't some kind of cliched sense of po- like mm, you know yeah. new age therapy positivity and inverted commas or whatever, you know. Yeah, uh, it's natural. Yeah, I think it's natural as well, and I think it's it's uh, I think it's more useful to your friends or people around you or people that you love or whatever, to try to be a bit optimistic, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. or to help the people around you in some kind of way and, you know, and not just be, you know, I think all of us get into things where you become a big self-indulgent downer about everything and it's hard to see your way out of it. And it does take music or, you know, the people around you to bring you back out of that. But, you know, as, you know, I think, you know and again in the band or whatever we don't talk about it's not like i've ever had a conversation about the song everything flows about the lyrics and everything ever really you know, like never never once have we discussed this song we just kind of someone does something and we just let it in and we accept it for what it is but we don't Talk about it, you know, That's in so any funny. kind of overt way at all. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with Norman about the lyrics and everything flows ever.
0: What about lyrics on *Endless Arcade*? Was was there much chat about that?
3: No, not really. I mean, again, we just kind of, uh, we just kind of, you know, sometimes the first we hear the lyrics is because some we kind of try and have some kind of vocal thing going when we're recording the song, but not fully formed and not with all the words on it. You might have a few. Have a bit of a chorus, mm. but we never, you know, we never sit down and talk to each other. We just kind of do that. We just kind of do it, and then everyone else reacts to it. But we don't have a a literal, reflective analysis yeah. of anything yeah. ever, and we never have. Um It's not like, hmm, yeah, that sounds interesting. What's that song about, or what's that? Yeah, that bit that sounds. We we just kind of don't really do it, you know. So we'll be there. And Norman's going to do his vocal, and we're there. Norman sings the vocal, and we hear the whole thing for the first time, maybe in that moment, unless it's been something we have rehearsed more extensively before. But there's, there's maybe a moment when you hear the whole thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and we don't, we don't really, we don't talk about it. We don't analyze it. You just kind of accept it, you know.
0: I've read in the past that you were sort of the band's de facto manager. Um, and there's one, a great Guardian article I read from a few years ago where he talked about, um, I think it was bandwagon-esque, and you were speaking to a lawyer in the US and you, you were in your, your, your folks' home in, in Glasgow. And you know, there, there was a real kind of paradox between the two worlds.
3: Yeah, I mean, I can you know, because, again, it wasn't like, you've got a group of people, and you've always got some kind of, you know, you know, hesitate to use the word dynamic or whatever it happens between any any group of people. Mm. You know, but it's just a kind of natural thing. You know, people are like different people that will take interest in different things. And for whatever reason, I was the one that might have dealt with more of the business side of things, uh, you know. But it probably started with me, there'd be me and Norman and I'd be the one that phoned the studio to book it or whatever, you know, and it kind of starts from there, you know.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, you just go, oh, I'll do that, you know. Uh, I'll book that van or whatever, you know. Uh, you know, so it ends up with, you know, you get a slightly ridiculous situation where suddenly we go to New York for the first time in 1990 uh, and suddenly people get interested in the band and you know, major labels started getting interested in the band. And somehow these mad guys went to New York. We got an advance from Matador Records of, like, you know, a very, very small advance. I can't remember what it was, $1,500. We bought it on flights to go to New York and play some shows in North America, Mm. uh, which people wouldn't do because it's not necessarily sensible. But we weren't really interested in what was sensible. We wanted to just go out and live our lives and, you know, experience things. But because we did that, I think people thought, who are these guys that are just here, apropos of nothing, you know, really uh, you know, and people back in the UK would look, suddenly thought who are those guys that would get in this press in North America, you know the, the normal way, the line of UK bands is you wait, you do a, you know, you get a bigger deal in the UK you become a band, you go to America when you're all jaded in a limo, then you're really grumpy and everyone in North America hates you which is usual kind of you know, The, the then, then, then you go back home and you bitch about america you know because you're not as successful there as you are in the uk yeah. or whatever the kind of normal you know uh the way it's meant to work out we just we just kind of went there the same way and sleeping in people's floors and driving around and doing all sorts of mad stuff the same way as we were here we just kind of behaved the same way there as here really? and people seem to be feel quite but anyway <laughs> you know cut a very long story short we end up speaking to people that are interested in signing the band so we're kind of like, oh, this all about you know um, so we ended up getting a, a lawyer in New York a guy called Richard Grable, He's a really cool guy, he was like Sonic Youth's lawyer and Don Fleming and stuff and, and he represented us, so suddenly I'm in a council flat in Mayhill in Glasgow in a multi-story flat and uh, I'm on kind of still on the dole at this time and I've got a New York lawyer, you know And I'm talking to this guy in New York about all these, like Columbia and, you know, Geffen and Atlantic and, you know, all these people are wanting to sign the band. And we're talking about setting up a trip to New York to meet all these people, which eventually did and met like 11 labels. And, you know, it was crazy. It was, you know, it was funny, you know. And Uh, this
0: this is a time where major labels are kind of snapping up guitar bands.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think w- the, there was probably a period when guitar pa- cu- guitar bands seemed unfashionable in the 80s, when everything went kind of uh, what who knows, I can't really remember. Yeah, uh, but people suddenly got interested in these guys in their early mid 20s. who looked like you know uh, they didn't really care, which is mm. us. And you know, you're not really aware. Young people aren't aware of the attractiveness of their own youth. And of their own fearlessness, <laughs> whatever you know. To uh, more jaded people, older suddenly, you know, we we couldn't really see it. But anyway, because anyway, I end up as this guy with no money in a council flat, living with my mum and dad talking to a New York lawyer. And someday we had this little rehearsal studio on the other side of Glasgow, and a lot I didn't. I kept the bus fare to go to to go to rehearsal, but you know, interacting with all this stuff, it was it was crazy. And you know, I remember talking to this guy, the guy that eventually signed us to Geffen Records was a guy called Gary Gersh. Uh, and I'm not sure what he's doing now, but I remember he was our A&R guy. And, you know, I'm in a council flat, it's two different worlds. He's sitting in Geffen's office in Sunset Boulevard in, in Los Angeles, you know, and I'm in a council flat in Maryhill in Glasgow. And I'm talking to him, and he's talking about a fax. You know, this is maybe before we signed. So We're still talking to him. I was chatting to him, and I said, and he was saying about sending a fax. I said, I don't have a, I don't actually have a fax machine, Gary. You know, and, and Gary was kind of funny. He was classic LA, and he said to me, you know, yeah, I won't do the accent. You know, He's like, Raymond, you know, you know, you can just go out and buy one. You know, and I'm kind of like Gary the reason I don't have a fax machine isn't because I'm stupid. It's because I don't have any money. You know, <laughs> I know you can buy one, <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's about 500 quid, you know? Uh, so anyway, cut to a few months later, we all had fax machines. You
0: know? <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, that's, that's the thing you read about that, you know, if, if a band puts out their early on, early on in their career, you know, a, a record, you know, maybe they don't see any money from it for, for 10 months or a year?
3: Well, we got, I mean, I have to say, they gave us a good big wedge of cash, <laughs> 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 which was useful, you know, because, you know, not that we uh, not we were still, we've, you know, I think one of the things we've always been good at as a band is we haven't ended up in the big financial hole too much, you know, where you end up, you get some money, you spend it all, then you realise you've got tax to pay, then suddenly you go bankrupt and the band's over. Mm. You know, we've managed to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, because that's so many bands end that way. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, uh, we managed to avoid that. But, you know, I'm not complaining. People gave us quite a lot of money in the 90s to make records. and uh, uh, But we were still doing exactly what we wanted. You know, certainly from creation. And, you know, people just gave us money. We went and made records it didn't make any difference other than the fact we had a bit more money to make a record, but nobody told us what to do. Our people may have tried to tell us what to do, but we didn't listen to anyone, you know?
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, Raymond, I don't want to hold you too long. And it's been a, it's been a total pleasure to hear all these stories.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose, you know, it's, it's always, uh, you know, I think, you need you know, you need to be weird. This guy who was our tour manager and for a while manager, Chaz Banks, uh, guy from Manchester and he you know, he had at the same time as having stories from the past, you have to be self-aware enough to not be like oh god, here comes this old tripper with his stories from the past, you know, because Chaz would be like, he would presage or whatever the word is he's like, listen boys, I don't want to give you the desert rat routine, but you know, and then you know, and he tell us Something about the, you know, so you don't want to be some boring old, you know, thing with, you know, stories about, yeah, what it was like, you know, Monty Python, you know, oh, that was nothing, wait till you hear, you know, what, you know, what it was like back in my day, you know, we, as I say, we've, uh, we've, um, you know, music, you know, all these uh, people tell, I suppose people telling each other stories about things is just part of what, what people. What people enjoy, but yeah, you need to be careful. You don't tell the same story ten times to the same person.
0: <laughs> and you know, just just finally, you know, talking about that and doing your own thing in the '90s and kind of being in it, being in, it, I suppose, in a fortunate position. You know, I, it kind of seems to me that you've you've remained that way. You know, doing your own thing, and then what happens around it is, is is doing its own thing. Of course, the music industry has changed so much. You know, it changes every year. Almost it seems.
3: Yeah, we, I mean, I think as a band, we've just maintained, tried to maintain a constant state of bemusement with everything around us (laughs) and not feel like we want We want to just maintain our separate bemused, you know, like, overview of everything and everything changes around you and we just kind of look, oh, look at that, you know, uh, that's different or whatever, but we just deal with it as it is around us and we try not to... Whinge about anything, or moan about anything, or complain about anything. We just uh, we just get on with it, you know.
0: I suppose when you try and control things, that's that's going to be when things might get hard.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we we just do we just try to have a simple thing. We're always just thinking about the next record we do, or what we're doing, or how we do the details of the simple things that we do. Mm. Um, I think where you can disappear. Uh, up your own arse or whatever is getting too much of a sense of who you are or the importance of who you are yeah. or becoming a pastiche of who you were or, you know, getting too self-conscious about who you are or what you should do or what your strategy is or whatever all any of that kind of stuff. We just like to uh, we've always, as a band as well, from when we made the first record of Catholic Education 1989, like We'll just go into the studio and make a record. Then we'll go into the world after that, uh, as opposed to trying to create a conceptual sense of the band. We mm. just wanted to be a band in reality mm. and deal with the world with something that we'd done that was real, as opposed to dealing with the world as a concept or whatever. Yeah. And I suppose that's just kind of what we've tried to do, just make the record first and then deal with whatever Whatever the world is like when we when we go back out into the daylight afterwards,
0: and naturally those records will will reflect the life you know the the real life elements.
3: Well, I mean we you know I think all you got all you got to offer is, is of any value is a bit of yourself, and sometimes it's hard to show. You know, um, you know you kind of have some song idea, and you think, oh, I can't, I can't do that. That's you know, I can't. You know, I can't i'll change that later you know to something more sensible but then you realize no that's kind of whatever it is that's it's come from somewhere you know
0: yeah somewhere pure
3: uh yeah somewhere inside or somewhere unconscious where anything you've got that's good comes out of your unconscious somewhere um uh, and you have to just kind of show stick your head above the parapet and show a bit of yourself. Um, for who you are, and kind of who you are now, you know, and as a band, we've always been like, well, we want to make a record about, well, it's us being us now, as we are now, you know, not as we were, you know, or, and, you know, we don't want to impersonate our previous selves or whatever, you know, we just want to kind of just continue to be be in the, be in the present day, you know, and people are either going (laughs) to react well to that or not, but in the process of making the record, we're just trying to please ourselves.
0: I think it's good for everyone to be reminded of that occasionally.
3: Well, you know, well, I suppose, I don't know what about other people, we, we kind of we like to remind ourselves of that. <laughs> That's all.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Raymond, thank you so much. I was so so surprised that, you know, you're, you're up for, for chatting to me, you know, so thank you so much for being
3: up it. Oh, for it's me. been a pleasure. Thanks, Charles.
0: So there you have it. Raymond McGinley of Teenage Fan Club here on 101 Part-Time Jobs. Cheers for listening in and see you next week. Have a good one. Here's Cox Barrow.
1: Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at com forward slash balance. Magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
2: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.